morning our message is going to be the shepherd's bag. You guys turn to the Great Commission. Get to Matthew 28. And uh, when you're there, say there. In this church, if you do not speak out loud, you will stand out for your silence and likely to be called upon. In Matthew 28, 18. Go ahead, Jennifer. How about you guys in the back left? Y'all there? All right. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Somebody say, make disciples. Of all nations. This is not called the little commission. It's not called the halfway commission. And when we're talking about the seriousness of the Great Commission, let's go ahead and acknowledge something. Every generation before us has failed to see it completed. This is an awesome subject. You would think that Jesus' last words before ascending would be the absolute preeminent priority of the church. But we live in an age where the church has accepted a different mission. Come grow with us. That is usually the church motto of today. Come Spend your lives making sure that some official uh, does well in his calling. This community of believers is not structured that way. will never be structured that way. And today's message about the shepherd's pouch is one more way to explain our vision to you. We're going to start in Samuel 17 with the most familiar scripture that I could find. So when you get to 1 Samuel 17, say there. It'll let me know you're there. We're going to take four items from it and then expand upon that. How many of you have read our mission statement? Jesus Christ spoke to me when I was in another state that I now consider a third world country. I got here and had anchor babies as fast as I could, called my closest friends and relatives as fast as I could, and most of you moved here. But there was a time when Texas was a foreign place to us. And he began to speak to me about focusing on one life, not not on the whole harvest because it was overwhelming to me at the time. Focus on the people that I put in front of you. Every day you're going to run into people and I want you to focus on those people. As time went forward, we found out that we're all pretty much the same. People are slaves to sin until Jesus Christ sets them free. And when they've been set free, they change altogether. They're completely different. And that leaven begins to work through their families. And so after learning about changing one life at a time, he began to speak to us and say one family at a time. And as soon as we saw families on fire for the living God, somewhere around 2011, he began to speak to us and say, now take on one nation at a time. That year, our church went to 23 countries. Now, that was kind of an exploratory thing. We learned how the man of peace works. We learned what it is to walk into a village you've never been into and don't even speak the language, pray, and God run you into an emissary who will help you. And how you stay in their house, eat what they eat, drink what they drink, and the miracle power of God shows up among you and you win converts because God desires to set up his kingdom there. Since then, our goal really has been to raise up some other churches that will do that. We're now five churches in the one association, and I believe there's supposed to be 12. 12 that will feed the 70 nations of the earth. When we read this scripture, we're going to read about a young Jewish boy who took on a giant task before him that was literally a giant. 
But I would like you to think about a little storefront church that smells of fertilizer when you first walk in it, that at times we have such rodent problems that they appear during our services, uh, and ask yourself a question. Are you serious about taking on the Great Commission? Because the Lord has given us a plan to do it, and 28 of you came forward at an altar call last week saying that you wanted to dedicate your life to foreign missions. Uh, I was excited, 28. The missionary who was speaking was blown away. He said he had never seen such a response from a church this size. He asked me how I felt, and I said, I'm disappointed that there was only 28. Uh, I expected a few of the slackers in the back to not answer, but I thought every other person would, and we're working on the slackers. And uh, he, was, he was surprised by that. We are not content to let you sit on your salvation and soak. We, we, we are not. The reason that we're not many hundred strong, if not thousand strong right now is because we actually will get in your life and push you to achieve the things that God's called you to achieve. How many of you know that's true? Raise your hand if you've been a little uncomfortable with your pastors at times. Amen. It's supposed to be that way. Um, you don't go to a doctor to hear that you're wonderfully fit. You go there when there's a problem. And the pastoral staff is here to help you. We're supposed to uh, prepare you for your works of service. And as we're thinking about that, let's pick up in a very familiar scripture, 1 Samuel 17 and starting in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. Say staff in his hand. Chose five smooth stones. Say smooth stones. From the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. Somebody say shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. David took four things to go and face Goliath. He took a staff. We're going to speak about the staff today. The next thing that he took were stones. We're going to speak about the stones today. The next thing that he took was his shepherd's bag. And we're going to speak about that today. And the last thing that he took was a sling. This is kind of a four-pronged approach to our vision, a way to explain our vision in yet one more way. And the reason that we're doing it is I want you to understand why we do the things that we do, why we're asking you to, why when 40 people go to Mexico with us in December, we're excited, but we wonder where the other 80 are, okay? Why we are not resting on what we've accomplished. We're not so impressed with what Jesus has already done that we think we get to take the next 20 years off. The reality is we've just actually scratched at the surface of what God's called us to do. And it's a good thing that your pastors are only in their 40s because we have some years yet to work at this. And our accomplishments will actually rest on your lives, what you do. And we, we want to accomplish an awful lot for Jesus. So we have, have high hopes for you. Somebody say amen in the house of God. When we're thinking about the staff, I want to start with a couple areas of the word. I'm going to break things down in a way that you probably haven't heard very many people do. We're going to quote from the law. We're going to quote from the prophets. We're going to quote from the writings. And then we're going to quote from the Newer Testament. It might make for a, a long message. Uh, if you didn't like that, you wouldn't be here. The point being is I want to show you the holistic nature of the call of God. I want to show you the way that in 66 contiguous books, these truths are there. In this church, we do not take a single scripture and then preach 
four uh, allegorical stories about it and finish with one joke and an emotional plea at an altar based on some strange end times theology that will have you disappear when the earth needs you the most. We don't do that. Our belief is that God has called you here for a very specific reason, that he prepared good works uh, in advance for you to do, that he saved you for a purpose, and that purpose was not to sit and soak or listen to some sage on a stage. That purpose was to get your hands dirty, uh, to share in the sufferings, the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, to know what it is to be in the trenches in weakness and have your God come through for you and turn that weakness into strength. And when you encounter him in a way like that, you won't need that preachers feed you. You'll be excited that they do. You'll praise God for them, but you won't need that teachers teach you. All you will need are brothers around you that encourage you that you're on the right track, that you're doing the right things. We don't need to elect a few leaders to go face giants. We live in the day when there's enough giants to go around for all of us. Can somebody say amen? amen. When you think of the staff of God, when you hear that he took a staff and it was in his hand, let's put Genesis 49.10 on the screen. When you see Genesis 49.10, this is one of the reasons I named my son what I did. This scripture overwhelms me one day. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations will be his. The ruler's staff, when it comes down to it, has to do with God's promise for his reign. The staff represents God's word. And he says that there would be a ruler's staff who would come. Some translations leave this open to a word called Shiloh. It's a messianic term. And my point being that God's word, when it enters into a man, will always cause you to reign. And you say, reign how? Well, if you're uh, married, then you reign in your household. God's kingdom is being established in your household through you. Anywhere that you go, you're advancing God's kingdom. The staff was a symbol of the shepherd's occupation, but it was also a symbol that God had called the people of Israel wherever they were. So in Genesis 49, we see that the staff is a symbol of rulership. How about number 17? We're going to read 6 through 8. Say there when you're there. Don't get lazy with these on the screen. Turn to them. You need a relationship with the book that is in your lap. It contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And you can look at it as if it's just a dusty old Bible. And maybe you think what's on your phone is just as good, but I promise you won't remember what the page looks like in your phone. I promise that you won't take notes in your phone that 20 years later are a blessing to you. You need to learn to have a personal relationship with your Bible. I love mine enough that I don't let other people hold it. I love mine enough that if my wife picks it up to read it, I adjust her hands to make sure she's not folding the pages back. Some think it's idolatrous. It's not idolatrous. I cherish the Word of God because people died to get it to me. More than that, I love your Bible, but I don't love your Bible like I love mine because I haven't spent hours reading yours. I haven't cried over the pages. They didn't bring me to repentance. They didn't call me to life. The pages in your Bible are just as good as mine, but they're not as good to me because they're not as familiar. You need to have a relationship like that. If your Bible is right now in your trunk or the back seat of your car, you need to repent. 
Okay? When you come in here, bring a Bible. When you go home and you're reading, read a, a specific Bible. Get to know it. The testimonies of missionaries throughout the world are that their Bibles were taken from them and they had dreams and saw the pages of their Bible in the dreams. You know, do you know yours well enough that you could tell me what Romans 4 looks like? See, David had the staff that is the Word of God in his hand, not on the back seat of his car, not, not in a library somewhere. He had it in his hand. Where should your Bible be? In your hand. In Numbers 17... 6 through 8, what we see is that Moses spoke to the Israelites and their leaders. And the leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. And Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staff before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. The next day, Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded and blossomed and produced almonds. One of the things that you have to love about this is that when you hold up the standard of God that symbolizes your right to rule, it will always bring supernatural fruit. It will always bring life right out of death. How many of you know that a walking stick you cut 20 years ago is not going to bud and bloom? But if the Spirit of God touches even a dry bone, It can bring an army to God right out of it. Do you need to breathe life into the Word of God in you? Do you need to dust off your tribal knowledge of the Word? Because if there are areas that you're struggling in, I promise the Word of God hasn't changed. The Word is the seed that that sower went out and he threw. But the question is, what kind of soil is it hitting in you? Is it hitting rocky soil, hard soil? What kind of soil is it hitting? When the Word of God ceases to pierce our heart, when the Word of God simply becomes rote and mundane to us, when when you look at it, you think, I already know that before you have actually encountered it again. We're in dangerous ground of simply becoming religious people, familiar with the things of God, but no longer knowing Him, no longer interacting with His Spirit. How many of you know that's a danger? It goes on all around us. At every baseball game, they hold up John 3.16. They can't quote John 3.17, and they don't really know what 3.16 means, but they're familiar with it. Yeah? We want the Word of God in our hand. We want it to come to life. Our, Our method of discipleship here, quite simply, is to put you on a collision course with God's Word. We believe that it will bring life right out of death. How many of you were in crazy places before you got born again? See, the whole world was covered in tohu vavohu, darkness, uh, disaster, chaos everywhere. But when God's word entered it, it immediately brought order. And that order created a place for life. The word enters into you and it will change everything about you. Somebody say amen in the house of God. When you're thinking on that subject, in Exodus 17, 9, We see something else that the word does, and it does it in the form of the staff here. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. What a strange principle that is. Does anybody think that's a good battle plan? If Daniel was here, and where you at, Ibrahim? Raise your hand. Ibrahim. 
If you had to fight with Daniel today, and I say, hey, man, mortal combat. Whoever wins, lives. Whoever doesn't win, dies. Because this is not a UFC match we're reading about. There are actual people living and dying in it. And I said, I'm for you, Ibrahim. I, I mean, I'm with you. So what I'm going to do is stand over there, and I'm going to hold my Bible above my head. How, how excited about that would you be? You'd probably want something different, wouldn't you? You can only assume that God put these men in this position to teach us something. This is the first appearance of Joshua in all of the Bible. And he shows up to do war with the valley-like uh, war dwellers, of uh, the warlike valley dwellers. That's what Amalekite means. They, they were there in the valley, and Moses was up on the mountain holding the standard of God for all the people to see. And as long as the standard of God was held high, then Joshua and the chosen men prevailed against those valley dwellers. I want you to know that it doesn't matter whether you're facing sickness. It doesn't matter whether you're facing the death of someone. It doesn't matter that uh, an overseer fell into sin. None of those things matter. What matters is that if you hold up the Word of God, you will never go wrong. If the Word of God is the highest thing in your life and it is always compelling you higher... We never bring it down to the men. We always bring the men up to it. The Word determines everything that we do. Our doctrinal statement in this church is that we believe in the 66 contiguous books of the Bible. All, all 66. And that we are doing our best to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if you can find an area that you don't believe we're addressing, we're open to repenting and moving and changing. That we have not so set this in stone that we're no longer teachable. And it's our position that many have set their doctrinal statements in stone, found out later that they were wrong, and pride would not let them change it. So we won't do that. There are things in the Word that are incontestable. And even a cursory reading will produce those for you. I don't need to summarize them in 10 points. If you come to this church long enough, you'll find out we're not shy about the things that we know to be true. And the things that we're not sure about yet, we're still open for discussion. We think Jesus can handle the debate. But the Word of God must be held high. Amen? Amen. Do you want to hold the staff above your head? In Exodus 17, 5, that same staff, listen to how God speaks about it. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. When you're thinking about Exodus 17.9 or Exodus 17.5, listen to the way that it refers to the staff that is the Word of God symbolically. He says, the staff with which you struck the Nile. How many times in your life have you encountered something in the Word? And then years later, you encounter another giant problem, but you remember what God did through that scripture, did through that. You need to carry the word of God close at hand all of the time. It's a reminder like a shepherd's staff. It's there for you to lean on. It's there to defend your family with. It is there to lean on and prophesy to your grandchildren. The word of God is what holds us up, period. I love charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, at least before it got so infected with the prosperity gospel that I don't recognize it. But especially 50 years ago, I love it. But we can never exalt the aspects that are uh, eclectic in our worship above the Word. The Word is 
everything. We worship in spirit and in truth. Those two work in a balance and never contradict each other. Somebody say amen. amen. How about Exodus 7.15? In Exodus 7.15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Do you notice how when God asked Moses to do something difficult, he reminds him that he's already done the impossible with that very same staff? We're supposed to be collecting experiences in our lives. We're supposed to be... You, one of the reasons I love my Bible the way that I do is it's been with me everywhere I've gone. I remember holding it in my hand and seeing a crippled man in India get up off of his mat. Some of you were there. I remember holding it in my hand and praying for that woman in Mexico that got out of the wheelchair. I remember the little demoniac in Romania that got free. I remember those things when I pick it up and it reminds me of something. I don't need more money. I don't need more Facebook friends. I don't need more comfort or a better life. All I need is the Word of God. If you have the Word of God, that's, that's all you need because it will lead you into every other thing. How important is the Word of God to you? In Genesis 32... Last one from the law. Genesis 32, 9 through 10. The patriarch Jacob, he prays. He's crossing a, a, a boundary in Israel. says, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. I want to tell you it's true that he only had his staff, but his staff represented the word of God. And if you have to leave something that you're involved in, naked and penniless, if you have to leave a disgrace and brothers wanting to kill you, but you have the word of God, then you have all that you need. And there is a day when you will face all of those accusers, all of those detractors, and the men and women that have clung to the word of God, they will have something to show for it. Do you remember Eleazar, son of Dodai, who stood his ground? His hand froze to the sword as he struck down Philistines. When everybody else retreated, he stood his ground. In this church, we will not let go of the word of God no matter whether a homosexual mayor says so, doesn't matter to us that five Supreme Court justices who are wicked beyond belief say so. It doesn't matter. We will stand whether jailed, not jailed. None of that matters to us. What matters is the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? I tell you, it's not just the law who says this, but as we're leaving the law, how many of you know what a sowed is? You've been through the class and you know what a sowed is couple of you. So it is the way that a Hebrew would refer to a kind of secretive interpretation, one that's not so obvious as to be derived from the text easily. I want to share it with you and then move on. It'll be in Exodus 4, starting in verse 2. Then we'll move to the prophets. Then the Lord said, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. 
If you're able to look at those miracles that Moses did, whether it's the hand that was clean and he put it in his cloak and it became leper, or he pulled it out and it became leprous and he put it back and it became white again, or it's this, where he takes the word of God, the standard, the staff, throws it at the ground and it becomes the symbol of sin and then he picks it up again. These are Christ. And they are Christ because he stands at the right hand of the Father, the one and only. And when he makes his presentation on earth, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. When he was ascended and resurrected, he is appearing righteous before the whole world again. The staff represents the reigning word of God in your life. And you have to have it at hand. Amen? How about Leviticus 20 in verse 32. I eventually will get out of the law. I can't help it. You got it back there, Susan? Nope. I'm sorry, go to Ezekiel 20 and verse 33. In Ezekiel, starting in verse chapter 20, verse 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will rule over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the desert of the nations and there face to face I will execute judgment upon you. As I judged your fathers in the desert in the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod or staff. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Understand that if Jesus is the good shepherd, the prophets teach us in Ezekiel 20 and verse 37 that every single person comes under the rulership of Christ. Every single one has to face the standard that is in the shepherd's hand. And what we've done in this life, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, it matters. Every man stands before the judgment seat of Christ and gives an account for things he's done in the body, whether good or bad. That's not just from the law. It's also from the prophets. The writings are in agreement with it too. Turn to Proverbs. When you get to Proverbs, look at 13 and verse 24. Many of you have quoted this to your children. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Do you believe that the Lord loves you? The rod represents his word, the righteous standard. And that word brings discipline into your life. Doesn't Hebrews 4.12 teach us that it will separate your joints from marrow, the motives from the thoughts? It comes into our life in a way that separates fact from fiction. It separates what we think we ought to do from what God says we must do. Is the Word of God in your hand and is it reigning in your life? See, if you want to be discipled, if you want to hit the mark that God called you to, 
Following the teachings of some man won't do it. Following the good desires that you have will not do it. First and foremost, you have to be put on a collision course with God's Word. And when you learn to do what He says to do and feel His affirmation on your life because you are doing it in obedience, there is no substitute for that. If you talk to men of God who have loved Him for a long time, the thing that they are addicted to is the feeling that they made Him proud in that moment. We all know what it's like to be disappointing. We all know exactly what it's like to have failed. But how many of you know what it's like to have dared something for Him that you could never have done on your own? And when it happens, you feel that triumph of spirit that says, look what He accomplished through this weak and lowly servant. There's no substitute for it. This is how you can take high school kids like Matthew and I and you can turn us into something for the Lord. We learn to depend upon Him in those moments. We learn to be addicted to obedience to His Word. So in this case, we've learned not to whine when the Word presents something that's difficult. We see it as an opportunity for His power to be displayed in the most unlikely of places, in us. Has He asked something difficult of you? Don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Those, that adversity is there to advantage you. It's there to shape you, to grow you, to teach you that you overcome by His Word. That's what it's there for. The very first thing that David took in his hand was the staff that is the Word of God. It's worth noting that while the word staff is not in Matthew 25, in Matthew 25 you can definitely see the imagery in verse 31 through 33. Jesus Christ is going to separate the nations. And when He separates them, listen to the way in which He does it. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. How did the shepherd separate them? He used a staff. He used his rod to do it. He would put the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. Friends, we're not going to teach this parable today. But do you know the only difference between the sheep and the goats in the parable? The sheep attempted to do what the shepherd said and the goats failed to even attempt it. The goats did not visit in prison. The goats did not clothe. They did not feed. The sheep did all of those things. They may not have done it well. They may, not have, they may not have completed the task, but they at least tried. In the end, the difference between sheep and goats are those who try and dare for God and those who fail to try. And I want you to understand, we will not spend an eternity with goats. It's not going to happen. And because of that, I'm not interested in farming a bunch of goats in here. We will not punish initiative in this church, ever. But we also will not allow you to sit in apathy because our glory is what you accomplish. So we're going to constantly... There's a saying in Romania, and so if you don't like it, blame it on the Romanians. They say sometimes a kick in the butt is a step forward. And I tell you, that'd be a good bumper sticker. Uh, the next thing that David takes in his hand, then he took the staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones. 
For just a minute, we're going to lay aside the numerology in five. Uh, uh, Many of you have studied that. We're going to lay aside the fact that the stones are smooth. And I'm just going to jump right to the point and say, if the staff is the word, in today's analogy, the stones are disciples. And when we look at disciples, I want to show you some things about that. Number one. Starting in uh, Genesis 11 in verse 3. The people in the Tower of Babel settled in the plain of Shinar. It's interesting to notice man's movements were always eastward. They were always the wrong direction from the garden. It's like we've been on the right road but headed the wrong way for a long time. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Not going to build an entire doctrine out of this, but it is interesting to note that bricks can be mass produced. They come out exactly the same shape and the same size. People like them because of their uniformity. Many people love brick houses. You often don't build houses out of stone because they're irregularly shaped and they're hard to shape. God is not interested in the easy. He's not interested in mass production. When he wanted to save the world, he started with 11 uncut stones or 12 uncut stones. He started with the kind of men that had such rough edges that you wouldn't have chose them. After he was resurrected in Matthew 28, it actually says some doubted and some worshipped. I mean, we're not talking about paragons of all that is right in the world. We're talking about weak, ordinary men who were moved by an extraordinary God. In this church, we are not interested in streamlining uh, discipleship. Not interested at all in having unending classes that if you ever do manage to get out of, you're academically stamped as a disciple. Discipleship is something that occurs in daily life. You want to, many of you have asked, hey pastor, how, how do I get discipled in this church? Come work beside me. You know, come over for dinner. Stop by the house. The door is never locked. You know, some of you have gone so far as to say, why do you spend so much time with so-and-so? Let me answer it for you, because they're there, and you're not. If you were there, I would spend the time with you. Uh, The hungry are going to get fed. None of you are excluded. And there's three pastors in a church of, right now, probably about 100 people. So 1 to 30 is not a terrible ratio, particularly when just a few of each of the 30 will try. Discipleship is something that is a hands-on process. David chose five. He didn't choose 5,000. You know, people argue all the time about why he chose five. Some say it's because there were four other giants that lived in Gath, and there's certainly scriptural merit to that. Some say, no, he, he chose five because if he missed with the first one, he wanted four more shots. Five's the number of grace, and maybe there's some merit to that. I'd like to believe that I'll use as many stones as it takes, and if it only takes one, praise God, but as many as it takes. Uh, I simply want to point to you that he chose people. You were chosen to be here. Discipleship starts with God choosing. It moves to an association that happens. And as you associate with each other, you become consecrated to one another. Covenants begin to form. And you shape it. I've known Charlie Brown since I was 18 years old. You know, I admired then the way that he lives and I admire now the way that he lives. There have been differences between us. I'm almost always wrong. And the point here is that you need people in your life that you're accountable to. 
You need people in your life that will talk to you and tell you. He also taught me to use a chop saw. I can't tell you how many in this church should be glad that he taught me to use those tools because I've built things for you everywhere and around the world. Discipleship comes when you spend time with each other. And there is no other way to get it. Let me ask you, who discipled you? You think you were discipled from a pulpit? I'm going to step out there and offend you as boldly as I know how. It is not possible to be discipled from a pulpit. That is a 21st century lie and a sham. Jesus never did it. Paul never did it. Paul said things like, I'm going to send you Timothy who's familiar with my way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 4. It is not possible to be discipled through a video series. It's not possible to be discipled through a glowing screen somewhere. At best, you could be stimulated to start your own study in that environment. But discipleship comes through daily accountability. This is why while Jesus is walking, he says, "Ah, what can I compare the kingdom to? Ah, It's like a sower going out to sow seed. Or it's like a field of wheat and tares. Or it's like a net being... They were walking past those things. They left everything and devoted themselves to discipleship. Do you want to be discipled? Are you sure? Do you know what it will take? We are supposed to make disciples. And it will involve you sharing your life. They cannot be bricks. The point here in Genesis 11 in verse 3 was that they cannot be bricks. That's... They're going to be uncut stones. Let's talk about what gets done with those stones. In Genesis 28, starting in verse 18. eighteen through 22. Genesis 28, 18 through 22. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured out oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. At Bethel, we find out that a stone, which I'm saying represents a disciple, is a monument to a time in your life that you dared something for God and that He came through for you. You want to know how you make disciples? You're going to have to go risk something. Men like Brent Vincent will not be discipled and follow a man who does not try. The only reason that his family... And do you love the Vincents? The only reason his family's in the church is because within the first five minutes of crossing a border, a gun was put to our heads. And we went on and had a wonderful, fruitful trip. You have to be in the middle of difficulty and people see God coming through for you. You know what that means? You're going to have to be vulnerable. You're going to have to allow yourself to be disadvantaged that God might come through for you. You can't always operate from a position of strength. You don't make disciples that way. What you make are people who worship you for your strength. But if instead they see you praying, see you asking God to come through, because if He doesn't, you'll all perish, and God comes through, they want to imitate that way of life. You are quite literally pouring anointing oil on them. 
You're showing them the source of all that is good and is right is the king of kings. And while you're being squeezed as an olive, what is coming out of you is the anointing of God. This is how we make disciples. Let me ask you, which of the apostles were so mighty that they didn't suffer constantly? Did Paul not write to Timothy that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? You want to make disciples, get persecuted and rejoice. Get beaten and leave rejoicing for the name. People will see that and want to follow. You want to know why we don't make disciples? Because we're sitting back in the comfort of our American lifestyle, waiting for Jesus to change the world while we do nothing about it. You're going to have to get out there and risk. And if you do, then you set up monuments in the house of God. In fact, disciples become the house of God. The next time he's at Bethel, it's Genesis 35, uh, verse 14. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. Do you notice he revisits the times that the Lord spoke to him? And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. This is Bethel. It is the house of God. I want you to know it's not enough just to let them see you squeezed and learn what the anointing is. You're going to have to pour out your life like a drink offering. This means that when somebody stops by your house because you've invited the whole church and it's in an opportune time, it becomes an opportune time right then. It means when you had other plans... You set aside your plans for the benefit of the kingdom. In short, it means that you have to take up the cross of Jesus Christ, deny yourself, and follow Him. You cannot minister from a safe and comfortable zone. Shepherds need to smell like sheep. And too often there's been a separation between clergy and laity, and there is no discipleship. You know, it's not uncommon to stop by the Stevens house at 2 o'clock in the morning, and there are still people there. Do you know why? because we'll meet with them as long as they want to meet. God has blessed us at this point in life where we don't have to punch a clock somewhere. And so we stay as long as they will stay. You know, I don't understand this mentality of rushing people out of your house and holding them at an arm's distance. You might make followers in the sense that you fill seats, but you will not make real disciples. Did any of you see Gabe and Debbie's wedding video that they put, their renewal of vows? That was one of the hardest disciples I've ever met. I'm just going to tell you the truth. He almost killed us. And his cousin Nick, I, I'd like to have died with them. Within a few minutes of meeting them, one of the young men joking with me hit me in the groin. I was 30 years old. I, I was not ready to be hit in the groin. We're not 13. I many times put my head in my hands and said, Lord, what are you doing to me? You told me to start a church and this is what you sent me? <laughs> and those men are godly and godly husbands raising godly children and they have a godly work called the Arising Church and we send another man, Michael Hutchinson, from this church to that one and they're in the midst of revival. You have no idea what pouring oil and pouring out your life as a drink offering on someone will do. You cannot pick the winners and the losers. You're incapable of it. That's Jesus' job. Your job is to live a sacrificial life in front of them all, not as a distant example but as up close and personal. I, I want to tell you the truth. 
Spiros Hades wrote a book called Is Christ God? And in about page 40 of that book, he was trying to explain it and he said a Japanese convert came to him and said he had a dream one night when struggling with what is the difference between Buddhism and Confucianism and, and Christianity. And he said Buddha walked past a hole that the man had fallen into and the man looked up and Buddha said, you've fallen in a hole. If you can reach up to me, I'll help you out. And Confucius walked by and said, you've fallen in a hole. You should try not to do that again. He said he saw Jesus Christ walking by the hole. And he crawled down into the hole, put the man on his back and crawled out. The Spirit of Christ gets down where people are and raises them up. You cannot do it from a distance. You want to make disciples, do you take the Great Commission seriously? You're going to have to let people in your personal space. You're going to have to stretch forward. And when it gets hard, you can't decide you're called to something else. It might take a little tenacity. It may even take supernatural power for you to finish what you've started. One of the things I least like about the charismatic and Pentecostal community is we're called on Sunday. But if it rains on Monday, he called us to something else. It is time to put a little elbow grease into the work of the Lord. People are worth it. You know, we all want grace, but we don't want to give it to other people. We hate sin as long as it's not our own. We love that. You know, to make disciples, we take the Word of God and we carry it through the most difficult circumstances and we invite people to join us in it and we join them in theirs. Do you want to make disciples? In Exodus 20, in verse 25. If you make an altar of stones for me, and that's what a life is supposed to be, is an altar before God. Do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. I will not participate in cookie-cutter Christianity. I don't particularly care what translation you use. I think you ought to read them all. I don't particularly care whether you grow a beard or don't, although all men should have beards. Uh, I don't particularly care whether you dress like me or Matthew or Wade. There's two good-looking pastors in this church and one ugly one. We are not creating followers of men in here. We do not want to use a tool on you. And there is nothing more annoying to me than to see a pastor wear a certain kind of suit and so every man in the church has got that suit. Jesus Christ did not create a cookie cutter system. If you read about those 11 that he first called, they're as different from each other as could be. Apparently John was a sprinter and Peter was not. I mean, they're, they're as different as could possibly be. And it's through your diversity that God is working in a common way. I mean, in the sense that he works in all men's lives, but each man reflects him a little differently, we find something beautiful like a 70-sided gem. So we're not interested in creating things that all look exactly alike. I love that Steve is different from Cody, and Cody's different from Justin. I love that. It's supposed to be that way. But what we're all supposed to have in common is that our standard is the same. Amen? Amen. Now, just because a tool can't be used doesn't mean that God doesn't do that. Look at Deuteronomy 9 in verse 10. Say there when you're there. 
The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. God himself will inscribe upon every true disciple a calling. He will inscribe upon every true disciple his word to them. In one sense, the Bible in your lap is the word of God to all mankind. In another sense, when a scripture speaks to you and your situation personally, it's different than all of the others. You've heard this described by preachers for years as a logos word versus a rhema word. Well, without getting into those things, let me just say that sometimes the word of God is true generally, and you know that. But when it becomes very true to you in your circumstance, in a way that you take your stand on it, it inscribes something in your heart. You know, we read Romans 4.18 earlier. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He wasn't reading about somebody else's promise. The word of God in Genesis 15 uh, 2 appeared to him. And in Genesis 15.6, he believed it and it was credited to him as righteousness. If everything that you knew about God could be solely winnowed down to what he personally showed you through reading the word or speaking to you, what would that look like? You want to find out whether you have what it takes to make disciples? Let's start with, have you gone into the heavenly well? The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, belong to God, but the thing that He revealed to us and our children's children, you can't pass along what you didn't receive. Proverbs 25, 2, it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's to the glory of kings to search it out. Are you being kingly? Are you searching it out? Are you being like your king? Are you simply sitting back waiting to be spoon-fed? One reason people don't make disciples is they don't really have anything of their own to give. What they do is they say, hey, you know what? You should come to my church. My pastor's a wonderful... <laughs> you may not say that here. <laughs> my pastor's a wonderful guy. He looks a lot like Ken and his wife, a lot like Barbie, and you'll be real comfortable there. Our services are 58 minutes from bell to bell. Your children will be entertained, and you'll be told you're a champion even if you're a hell-bound sinner. I would a whole lot rather be put on a confrontation with the Word of God so that I could be affirmed where I need to be, corrected where I need to be, rebuked where I need to be. The Word of God is our standard, and real disciples have it inscribed upon their hearts. Is the Word inscribed upon your heart? In Joshua 4, you may not realize it, but in the Hebrew Bible, Joshua is considered a prophet. Joshua 4, verses 8 through 9. Check this out about stones. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones. How many stones? It's a curious number. 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Disciples are made during the most inconvenient, difficult times in your life. They're there when you face flood zone. And you want to buckle and cry, but because there are people standing with you that you've proclaimed the glories of God to, you don't. And they're with you when you walk across those boundaries that can't be crossed. And they serve as a reminder, not just to you, not just to their generation, but look down at verse 20 through 24. 
Look at what Joshua says about these stones. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what He had done to the Red Sea when He dried it up before us until we had crossed over. If you want people to know in the generations to come what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, it can only come from making disciples in every nation. Otherwise, we end up building monuments to past movements. Friends, have you anybody been to Europe? You, have, you, have you been to the average church row in the United States? You, you can go right over here to Eldridge, and what you see when you go down the road are monuments to men of God who once existed. But when you go in the church, the men in there are nothing like those men who once existed. How does that happen? When we stop making disciples. You want life-changing ministries to be a success? You want to advance the kingdom? You want to be a success? You have to make disciples. And it's not the work of the pastorate alone. It's not even the work of the pastorate in a majority sense. It's the work of the congregation, period. Bar none. People will come to Christ because of your testimony, your struggle and prevailing because God is with you. That's how they come to Christ. Many of you are in the church because I met you somewhere. Where are all the people in the church because you met them somewhere? See, this is the difference between electing leaders that are your champions and getting out there and doing the hard work of the kingdom. I want to tell you, you can do it. You can do it. You have so much more going for you than Wade, Matthew, or I had when we got here. I mean, the truth is we were just scared kids that were told they couldn't do it and set out to prove that we could because God was with us. And the more insults and abuse that were heaped on us, the more determined we we would have died rather than fail. And at times it felt like we were going to. I'd like to cover from the writings with you. Go to 2 Chronicles 3.6. In 2 Chronicles 3.6, this is Solomon. He adorned the temple with precious stones. You know, you, this is certainly not revelatory, but I would like you to understand that when you pour oil on a stone, when you pour out your life like a drink offering and it becomes a monument to the movement of God, when it becomes a sign this is a part of the house of God, it's a precious stone in the work of God. This is actually what the Lord spoke to me one morning here when I got here. I crawled out of bed certain that I was failing in every possible way. I was actually tearful, which is unusual for me. I turned on uh, the uh, CD player. Somebody hit me. We don't do this anymore, but they'd made a mixed CD. I didn't know who Jason Upton was, but when it came on, he was singing in tongues, and that I liked. And he said, it's, it didn't matter what he said. He sang his song. And as he did, I identified with every part of it. And Scripture began to flood my mind about what God had originally told me. And he said to me, I will make this ministry like a magnet. And it will draw the precious metals and the precious stones from the earth. And you will polish them and send them out in my service. Friends, that's you. 
We came here in anticipation of you. We came here and worked when there was nothing because of you. We left healthy ministries. We left households. We sold houses and businesses to come here and work because of you. Because we love you and we love the God who called you. You're a precious stone in the house of God. I rail against sin in here. I preach repentance all of the time. Oh, one brother warned me, he said, look, in your hatred of sin, make sure that you don't confuse this as hatred of sinners. I'm still working out that difference. I, I, I'm jealous for my God. I love Him. I hate myself when I sin. I don't like it when you sin either. I'm not going to pretend to. But you are precious to Him. We can't let Him down. 30, 60, 100 fold. Anybody lift up to the 30 fold yet? You carry this concept into the New Testament. You get to 1 Peter 2. Turn there. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to Him, the living stone, you don't think of Jesus as a disciple, but He only did what He saw the Father doing. He only said what He heard the Father saying. That is discipleship in every way. He just succeeded at it without any sin so that He could be called the apostle and high priest of our faith. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him. Isn't it interesting that to be rejected by men is often to be precious to God? You might not be able to have it both ways. I mean... The Pope can be loved by everybody. Joel Osteen can be loved by everybody. There are a lot of people that can be loved by everybody, but only God knows whether or not they're precious to Him. It's been my experience and the experience of the men who gave us this book that to be precious to God was to be hated by the world. Oprah Winfrey probably would never call the Apostle Paul to come on her show. Probably would not get invited to pray for homosexual mayor's inauguration in the city. They don't get those kind of things because when they loved the Lord, His standard was everything to them. You know, anybody see Passion of the Christ? Yeah, everybody saw Passion of the Christ. I was asked when I walked out of there how I felt about it. And I was nauseous. I wanted to throw up. It's not that it's not a beautiful story. It's, you know, Matthew and I have been friends since we were 15. We met in a fist fight, and if it had been allowed to carry on, Matt would have killed me. So God protected me back then. And um, we've been friends ever since. We know what it was like to lose by 60 points at a homecoming game and run 62 wind sprints in front of our crowd because our coach was a sweet man. And um, know what it was to play in the Superdome together. He got born again, and I hated him for it. I loved him, and I hated him. I loved him, and so I hated him. And you say, well, how could that be? Well, now he was different than me. Now he upheld the righteous standard that I knew I wasn't. And I hated him for the way that it made me feel guilty and separate from him. He prayed for me. I called him ugly names. I stepped on his hands when he was getting up from the... It doesn't matter what I did. When I watched Passion of the Christ, I felt like I'd just watched somebody tear Matthew limb from limb. How do you love Jesus? Do you love him as a distant figure? Is, I mean, you have a picture of Ronald Reagan and Jesus next to each other somewhere in your house? Or Barack Obama and Jesus? I don't know where you come from. 
Because I love him. And I want to be as precious to him as he is to me. The whole world is talking about unconditional love. I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to get into that. I don't think they begin to know what love is. I want to tell you God's love does have a few conditions, and obedience is one of them. Anybody tells you differently has not really read this book. I mean, they, they, they haven't. The, read Psalm 5.5 5 and tell me God has no conditions for his love. No. He hates the wicked, abhors, his soul detests. Yeah, we won't get into that now. You have to come back next week to hear that one. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a precious stone making up the house of God. You represent Him to the world. Disciples represent Him to the world. If I were God in the first century, what I would have done was I would have lit up the sky with heavenly signs, but He didn't choose to do that. He chose weak, lowly earthen vessels, all of whom gave their life for the gospel. He said, well, John didn't. Well, they tried many times. John, John offered his life. It's not his fault they were unsuccessful. That's a strange plan to save the world, don't you think? I want to tell you God's plan has not changed. Church's plans have changed, but God's plan has not changed. He still has chosen weak, ordinary men to fill with extraordinary power and send you out like lambs before the slaughter. That is still his plan. Do we have the audacity to tell him we want him to save us, but we do not want to finish his work? By the way, in Revelation 21, 19, the city that is descending full of precious stones. Let's move on to the shepherd's bag. Is that all right with you guys? Are you bored out of your minds or would you like to learn? If I have not yet offended you, I promise I'm trying to. I'll get there. Just give me a little bit of time. The shepherd's bag. When we're thinking of the shepherd's bag, let's start in Genesis 12, 3. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. You know, when these peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, one translation of that is the community of peoples of the earth. In Hebrew, there's a word there called quahal. And when you wanted to refer to the people of Israel in the desert, they were Kohol HaYahweh, the assembly of the Lord. The people from the nations would not stay distant. We say every tribe, every tongue, every nation, but they were not intended to stay distinct in the sense that they were separate. We would all enter into one assembly of the Lord and it would be represented by a person from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Those who enter into the shepherd's bag, which is really the church, they're all people who were born of the same promise as Abraham. You've been told by theologians that there are different dispensations and that in different dispensations people were saved differently. This is, uh, it's, it's the fertilizer that's on the other side of that wall. There, there is a, a lawn care business over there and, and they stack stuff high and deep over there and so do theologians. You will never find that written in the Word and it was not taught anywhere in history before 1830. Abraham was saved exactly the same way that we are. The Word of God appeared to him in a vision. He believed that Word and it was, hear this, credited as righteousness. When we believe God, 
And that is evidence through our obedience, trust-grounded obedience. The way you prove that you believe Him is you obey Him. He credits you with salvation. That's not different at any time, period. That's how Adam was saved, how Noah was saved, how Abraham was saved. It's never changed. The shepherd's bag is first and foremost defined by people who have believed God's promise to them. Secondly, in Exodus 12, 6, In Exodus 12, 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel slaughter them at twilight. On the 10th of Nisan, you would take a lamb into your house. For four days, you would watch over that lamb and make sure that it was perfect. On the 14th of Nisan, every head of every household would cut that lamb's throat and put its blood on the doorpost. The shepherd's bag is not just full of people who have believed the promise, but they've come under the blood of the Lamb. This word community here is quahol. It's the predecessor to church or ecclesia in in Greek. The, The point here being God has been assembling a community of disciples. That's what goes in the bag. The church is not made up of just, uh, what's a popular one today? Seekers. It's not just made up of a crowd. The actual church is, are those that are being discipled. Everybody else is not yet in Christ. If you haven't left everything to follow Him, you're not in Christ. If you're not being discipled by Him, you're not in Christ. You're just standing on the outside hoping one day to slip in. Say, so, well, come on, man, that standard's so high. We've lowered the standard so much that you can be deceived. You know, just because you can build the biggest building or line the seats as far as you can see. Yes, but how many would show up on battle day? You know, they say 10% of a church is often providing 90% of the finances. If that was true in here, your pastors would have starved a long time ago. 98% of everybody that is here gives and gives sacrificially. And we don't even pass an offering. You know, it's because we are making disciples. I'd like to fill up the rest of these seats with disciples. But I'm also interested in running off anybody that doesn't want to be a disciple because they're taking a disciple's seat. And we won't lower that standard. Have you received a promise? Are you covered under the blood of Jesus? How about Deuteronomy 5.22? Listen to what happened with the Quahal. In Deuteronomy 5.22... These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your, somebody say it, whole assembly. Now say it with me. Whole assembly. There on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and added nothing more. Then he wrote them on the stone tablets and gave them to me. How many people in Israel did not hear God's voice? None. Every single living Israelite standing at the mountain heard the voice of God. You cannot be in Christ without Him ever having spoken to you through His Word. If you've never had that moment where a promise of God came alive to you, you were so convicted of your sin that you knew that your life was worthless. You were under death and the only way you would ever pass to life is if He granted you life. If you never heard His voice bearing witness with your spirit that you're a son of God, then you're probably not a son of God. Let me ask you, what's more dangerous? 
causing one or two of you to doubt and have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or giving you a false assurance that you're all great with God when you and I both know many of you are not? What's more dangerous? See, I'm not selling anything. These pastors are not selling anything. We're actually trying to give our lives away. And the assembly of the Lord is only made up of those who have heard the voice of God. You know, praying a sinner's prayer, repeating it after somebody may not uh, constitute hearing the voice of God. Does His Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you're a son of God? How about 1 Samuel 17, 47? That'll get our prophet out of the way here. 17, 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give all of you into our hands. All those gathered here, that word is quahal, it's assembly. It turns out that if you put in the shepherd's bag real disciples, then all of the disciples are encouraged by any one faithful action of the other disciples. If you put 11 men together and one of those men dares to do something for God, then what happens is the other 10 men get excited and say, we can do it too. See, when David goes to face that giant... All of the others in the assemblies, they saw it and they began to receive a giant killing spirit too. You want to know how we begin to make disciples? When you begin to believe and you try and the person sitting next to you goes, if Alex did it, I, I'm not going to be left out. If, if Mr. Fred brought, brought a disciple, then I, I'm not going to be left out. We're supposed to spur one another on towards righteousness. Sometimes the reason you're sore with me is I'm the only one spurring. Look at your neighbor and say, it's about to get uncomfortable. Because I'm going to outwork you in the kingdom. <laughs> see, the point is, is when you see your brother working hard and laboring for the Lord, you don't want to be left out because you love the Lord. And you want, it's not a works-based salvation. It's, it's working because you're saved. It's because you love Him. You want to fulfill the Great Commission. I was going to read, uh, the prophet here was 1 Samuel 17. Samuel's in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. The writing is Psalm 149. I'm going to skip it for time's sake. But if you read Psalm 149, it's, it's eight or nine verses of absolute goodness. And, and what it amounts to is that everything you do in the assembly encourages everyone else in the assembly. Why do we gather together here? Why do we do what we do? It's not so I can collect an offering and eat. I was eating better before I got born again, right? It, that, that's not why. We meet here together so that we can encourage one another as long as it's called today. So that when any one of us is having weak knees and feeble, we can encourage each other and say, come on, brother, I'll help you shoulder this load. But listen to me, you can carry your own load. It, the reason that we get together is to say, don't get distracted. Life is not about a bigger screen TV. Life is about making disciples for the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's why we come together. Can you say sometimes we lose track? Yeah, I lose track sometimes. Praise God, He's surrounded me by brothers that have high expectations. The worst thing you can do is punish your brother by expecting very little out of him. Look at Acts 11.25. Let's get to the Newer Testament with this. In Acts 11.25, in the shepherd's bag, we have something. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. That's the New Testament replacement for Quahal. It's ecclesia in the Greek, or ecclesia if you prefer. With the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Not just those who attended. Not just those who happened to wander by. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We can argue whether it was a compliment or a slur. I don't know and I don't care. The point is something about their behavior of the disciples. People could go, that looks, that right there, that looks like Christ. You want to know why people are not just beating down the door to the average church? It doesn't look anything like Christ. It's been streamlined. It's been wonderfully efficient. It's beautiful. Of course, Christ wasn't any of those things. Jesus Christ is not a theme park. And He's not here to give you your best experience now. He's the Lord of the universe and the Master of all men. If you want to witness of Him, people will have to see your obedience. And obedience is tested the most in trial. So Christians need trials. And we can count it pure joy when we get them. It's here where Barnabas and Saul were in the shepherd's bag. And look what happens. Go to Acts 13, 1 through 3. It's what the shepherd's bag is for. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas. Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In Acts 13, you see the hand of God reaching into the shepherd's bag and getting ready to take on a giant task. Every once in a while in here, we see the hand of God reach into the shepherd's back. This is when we send Eric Treister to New Life Church in Victoria, Texas. It's when we send Gabriel and, and Nick to the Arising Church. It's when we stretch out to help establish King's Harvest uh, Fellowship 2015. It's, it's when we stretch out to see uh, Ezekiel Lamb begin submission ministries. That is God stretching His hand into the bag. But it is not over. It cannot be over. We have to empty and refill that bag over and over and over. You know, many of you have ministry aspirations, 28 of you. 28 of you want to give your life to foreign missions. Let me ask you something. If you're taken out of the bag, if you're sent, where is your replacement? I find it the most unnerving thing in the world as a pastor that people can presume to be called to go, which, amen, we're supposed to be, I'm for it, it's what I'm preaching about, without ever having made one disciple here. How can you begin to believe you will do there what you never did here? Wow, it's quiet in here. You want to know why we sent Michael? Michael was making disciples. You want to know why we ordained Michael? Because God had ordained him and you couldn't deny it. Friends, uncut stones get stacked together in a way that makes sense to God. You don't pick them, but you can surely see it when it is God. 
28 of you want to go. Give your life to missions. That's an easy thing to say, a difficult thing to accomplish. I'm somebody who for 22 years has been giving my life away. Let me ask you something, though. Can you really go without having made disciples here? And how many should you make here before you go? It's not Amway. It's not a buy-in system. I'm just telling you, if within the shepherd's bag, the one place on the planet that God put you to prepare for us to prepare you for your works of service, if you're not yet doing it here, then it's kind of a pipe dream to think you'll do it there. You want the blessing of the church? We will not hold you back. If, you won't, if, if you're going, no matter what we say, we're going to bless you on the way. We've done it here even recently. So I don't think you should go. Yeah, well, I'm going. I really wish you wouldn't go. Well, I'm going. I, God bless you. I love you. We're going to be with you, but, but I really don't think you should go. That's too late. I'm gone. Well, what do you want me to do? But if you want to go the right way, the right way is that you do here now what you plan to do there and then. You know, this is something analogous to a man saying, when I hit the lottery, then I will tithe. No, you won't because you don't tithe now. Well, I will go there and I'll plant a church. I will go there and I'll disciple men. No, you won't because you're not doing it now. So, Pastor, you're just not for me. You're not for our vision. I'm more for your vision than you are. That's what I'm trying to do right now is stir you up. And, you know, from this pulpit, more of you men have preached than probably any other church does percentage-wise around. We are for you. But we don't want premature births. And we don't want to hold people beyond their time. You can kill a vision by smothering it and telling people they're not ready. I'm saying you're ready the moment God's inscribed it upon your heart and it has borne fruit in your life that shows it. You know, it's up to you and up to God, not up to me. But we will not hold back in the shepherd's bag a man that God called. Let me ask you, how did those stones get smooth? This is an example of a Jewish Teflon bag. What you put in this is the Teflon and the phylacteries that have the name of God on them. Jews, because of Deuteronomy 6, often put this on their head when they pray. If you were going to put stones in here and carry them around, don't you think they'd rub on each other a while? Anybody got a stone polisher anywhere at home? When we were kids, we used to do that. Yeah, you like geo stuff and uh, he does and as they tumble on each other they get smooth he picked him up out of a stream bed but he put him in the shepherd's pouch and it's from the shepherd's pouch that he put him in the sling you know whose job it is to make disciples it's the church you know whose job it is to gather the disciples together it's the church it's the fivefold ministry who's supposed to prepare them to be put in the sling you know that's that's the point We've, we've, we've done our job. We've loaded the sling. We've done our job. We have not failed to send out. We have sent out more people from this congregation than there are here presently today. Somebody has to make disciples. Do you think that it's the will of God for this work to diminish, to go away? If it was worthwhile enough to launch those ministries, isn't it worthwhile enough to make disciples for now? And it's not about this ministry. It's about the kingdom. You know why I'm still here? I look, they wanted me to stay in Romania and I wanted to stay in Romania. Last time I was in India, they wanted me to stay in India and I wanted to stay in India. 
I like it where it's difficult. I'm a better human being when the adversity is easy to see. Uh, I don't want to be on the rooftop when everybody goes to war. I want to be on the battlefield. It's good for me. I'm here because it's best for you. That's why I came in the first place. In the name of Jesus, can we get to making disciples? Look, I walked past a table in Romania. Romania killed 400,000 Jews right around World War II. There's less than 4,000 Jews in Romania now. I walked past a table and I saw these Teflon. And the, the Teflon, most of them, they, they bear a, a symbol. I'll see if I can show you. That looks like a shin right here. A shin is the Hebrew letter that represents El Shaddai. Have you all seen these before? We'll take a close-up picture and put it on the screen for you. And, and the shin is the name of God. That's, that's what it represents. Most of these Teflon on the table had lost the name of God. They'd been worn off over time. Most people that set out to carry the name of God to the nations, they lose it along the way. The name is the character, the authority, the reputation. Somewhere along the way, they become discouraged. Somewhere along the way, they stop flying straight. Somewhere along the way, the devil diverts them and they get off course. This happens all over the globe. I found two that still had the name of God on them. And I gave them to two disciples that were with us. It was my pledge to them that within the next couple years, we're going to plant them in the Middle East. And I kept the empty shepherd's bag as a reminder to me and the other two pastors. It is our job to fill this bag only so that it can be emptied for His glory. There is still a giant task out there. And if we don't disciple, then it will never get done. The church is obsessed right now with its own blessing. And what we're supposed to be obsessed with is blessing the, the, the rest of the world. This is what I'm trying to pour out my heart to you about. The sling, the sling is the call of God. I'm going to make this very, very quick, very, very easy, unlike everything else we do. Exodus 3 and 10, Moses was sent by God. Jeremiah 1 and 7, Jeremiah was sent by God. Proverbs 25 and 13, put that one on the screen. It's about snow during summertime. Listen to this. Like the coolness of snow at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger for those who send him. He refreshes the spirit of his masters. You know, we're all interested in sending people. As long as they will be there what they were here. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? You have to demonstrate here that you can do it so that there, under more pressure, separated from the other disciples, all alone, you will also do it. And the most refreshing thing in the world to us is when we hear that you're doing well. My favorite phone calls to take are from the other pastors in the One Association. They're calling to tell me about their most difficult problems. They're calling to tell me about their lives. And I realize they're doing it. But you know what they all have in common? They were doing it here before they left. In Luke 10, in the Newer Testament, to bring it into the Newer Testament, Luke 10, 1 through 9, Jesus sends out the 72. 
Let's skip down a couple verses. He sends them out everywhere he's going. Look at the vulnerability in this. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. You know why he could say that to them? Why he could send them out without purse, without uh, money bag? He could send them out like that because they had been with him. And they knew in a bind what to do. How to call on the name of God and be answered from the heavens. You know, there's a sense of urgency in it. Don't greet anybody along the road. You're not here just to make friends. You're here to advance the kingdom. The purpose for the shepherd's bag is to create stones who can do this. If I wanted to be controversial, I would say to create men like stones that can do this. You've never read the King James, have you? Let's keep going. Verse 5. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. Do you know what we do? We put the rest of the world in right order with God. Peace to this house is shalom to this house. You show them how to walk in harmony with God and man. Let me tell you something. You cannot do that in a place where you don't know the language, in a country that you're a foreigner, if you're not doing it in your country where you know the language and are not a foreigner. I feel sorry for some of the nations when I get there and I see what the church has sent. It's kind of like, golly, this guy won't be discipled. He wants to do something for the Lord. He won't listen to us. Let's get him out of here. That's not fair to the nations. We should send our precious stones, our very best, not the unteachable, uncorrectable. Yeah? Do you want to be a precious stone? I would like to close with you with 3 John, verses 5 through 8. I know all of you have 3 John memorized. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. Pause on that. Pause. Go back. Strangers to you. When these guys were, were sent, somebody had to have confidence that they would carry the message truly. When they were received... They were strangers to the people that received them, but the people were faithful. I want you to know that anybody who's been given a trust has to prove faithful over that trust. That's the way that this works. Can you be faithful to a group of strangers if you're not faithful to this community? Shouldn't you demonstrate your faithfulness to this community to prove that you would be faithful? to strangers? Isn't that the most reasonable thing in the world? You know, we don't do marriage counseling if you don't come to every service. We don't do advanced combat training if you do not come to the services. And those of you that made the cut, you took a spot from somebody else. If you miss a service, you're eliminated. You know why? If you can't prove faithfulness in this, then we're under no delusions. You'll be faithful when we send you somewhere. Some say that's harsh. It's not harsh. It's actually a blessing. We don't want to be a part of your self-delusion. But you're here because you can. That's the thing. You're being called to a standard that the Holy Spirit will help you hit. But it's a standard you'll have to trust Him to help you hit. It's going to require you to be empowered by Him or you won't do it. I can't do it. Matt can't do it. Wade can't do it. But we have learned that With Him inside of us, we can do all things. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. 
They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. 28 people came forward. I was thrilled to death. My goal is to send you on your way in a manner worthy of God. I will not try to retain not one life in here. But let me ask you, if we're going to send you in a manner worthy of God, shouldn't you be living right now in a manner worthy of God? It was for the sake of the name that they went out. Why did they go out? The sake of the name. I want you to get that. In Hebrew, that's Hashem. It's for the sake of the greatness of God, for the sake of the character of God, for the sake of the reputation of God Almighty that they went receiving no help from the pagans. Church, when you are sent, it has to be for God's greatness and not your sense of personal achievement. He has to speak to you to go. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Life-changing ministries was formed to birth ministries. That's why ministries is plural in our name. We have proven it by doing it. We support missions on five continents, and it's the first check that we write every month whether we have it or don't have it. And my brothers can attest to the number of months that have gone by in years past where the pastors went without salaries and without parsonage to do it. It is our joy and our honor to do it. We also get behind brothers when they feel called to start or do a work, and you have my commitment personally, these pastors' commitment. If you're called to Egypt, I'll be the first on the ground with you in Egypt and be there any time that it would benefit the kingdom to do it. If you're called to Africa, we want you to go and go with God's speed, but we want you to go in the right season. The purpose of this entire teaching is that you learn to correctly handle the staff that is the Word of God, that you make stones. This is like filling a magazine for warfare, a clip in a gun, and that you uh, relate to the shepherd's bag appropriately. This assembly here is being assembled to kill giants. That's what we're here for. We're supposed to rub on each other and make smooth stones. We're supposed to encourage each other with our actions. And we're supposed to load the sling and cheer each other on during the most difficult of journeys. That's what life-changing ministries is about. No wonder not everybody wants to be a part of it. And that's okay. Not everybody wanted to be a part of Jesus' ministry either. Nothing has changed. But we do meet churches around the world that are put together exactly like we are. And we instantly have fellowship. Could we stand to our feet?